hey good people how we doing look let me warn you before this episode even starts go get yourself a pen go get yourself a notepad because this brother is going to be dropping some heavy gems on us today i find it personally imperative that we have to shift the image and the narrative of who black men are who we are and what we can do in this world so i love it when i could bring a young brother on this show so he could talk about how he's found his niche found his purpose found his calling in an industry that really not too many of us are in Y'all gonna get some knowledge today. Y'all gonna get some wisdom. Y'all gonna get some facts. Y'all gonna get some good learning. Get your notepad ready. And I'll talk to y'all later. Peace. Hey, good people. How we doing? So... As promised, I have someone really special here for you today. I've known this guy since I was about, what, 12, 11 years old. Always been uh, like a big brother to me, like a mentor to me. Um, we have a Kim here, a.k.a. the Brunch God. Say what's up, guy. <laughs> <laughs> giving me too much credit, man. You're giving me too much credit and making me feel way too old. Um, <laughs> so yeah, you're right, Brunch God, Kim, you know. I do a bunch of different things, but I'm excited to kind of get into this conversation with you, man. Definitely. So first of all, um, we got to put a little bit of groundwork down, right? Tell them a little bit about uh, Prep for Prep, how you got into, actually just give a, a brief overview of your educational background. That's a very interesting place to start. Sure. Um, born and raised in Flatbush, Brooklyn. Um, went to public school from first to fifth grade. Sorry, first or sixth grade. Um, got into the prep for prep program in fifth grade. Ended up going to Little Red Elizabeth Irwin, one of the more progressive private schools in New York City. Same school you went to. We kind of have that background connecting us. Um, after that experience, graduated there in 2002. Um, funny side story, or not so funny side story. My senior year was 9/11. So I experienced wow. 9-11 in a very up close and personal way, which which ultimately changed the direction of what I thought my college career would have been. Um, ended up getting into Boston College, enrolling there, which was a very different experience than um, Little Red, obviously. Um, did that for four years, returned to New York City, where I started a career in education and nonprofits, working at various NGOs, um, charter schools, independent schools, and now I'm back in the NGO space once again. So... It's, it seems to be, right, um, I still keep in touch with a few people from uh, Prep for Prep, and it seems to be a really common career path to go with education, right? Um, we've been blessed to uh, have this pathways to education in, um, in a way that a lot of people from our community don't. Do you think that that affected uh, your career path, the, the Prep for Prep route or the LREI route? Yeah, you know, I think it's a bit of both. Um, I always see the connection between programs like Prep for Prep, Oliver, Teach, and various programs that take students from the public school space and put them into private school space. Uh, oftentimes, those students who have those very different educational backgrounds, being in public school, kind of experiencing how different that is, and then being on these really privileged spaces, tend to become really, really focused on 
wanting to address the inequities that they see in the education system. Mm. So I do think that's why many um, people go into that education space because of how different their educational experiences have been and how they can clearly connect the chance for the opportunities that they have to really change their trajectory of life and ultimately want to do kind of the same thing on, if not a teaching level, but definitely on a policy level as well. You know what the thing is, right? So we have uh, a lot of the private or independent schools now have black at filling the school. Um, and it speaks to what you just said about the inequities that you, uh, that people have experienced um, at these institutions. It's funny for me because an institution like uh, Little Red or Elizabeth Irwin, so progressive, right? Yet we still find instances upon instances upon instances where there is racial uh, bias or microaggressions or injustice. How does that happen at a space that is so quote unquote tailored towards progressive education and inclusivity? You know, I think it has a direct result to do with the very founding of many of these institutions. I think as we witness the various protests and kind of look at the history of America, people fail to address the actual founding and the history of many places that we navigate. I think when you think of independent schools, the very founding of independent schools was to take white students who were well off, remove them from the private school sector, and place them into institutions that they would have to pay for. So the very founding of these institutions, even the more progressive ones, are laden with that history, then we can't be surprised that what what happens over time is that we experience some of these inequities. It's the I like to use the analogy of a tree. Mm -hmm. If the root of a tree is spoiled or rotten, then you can't be surprised as the tree grows and you get fruit from that tree that those fruit are also rotten kind of similar to a house. If the foundation that you build a house upon has cracks in it and gets water in it, then everything that sits on that house, on that foundation, will invariably be not strong. Yes. So I think oftentimes you don't, when you don't address the history of these institutions or the history of the country or the history of policing in America, then you fail to realize how that history is a direct replication of its present conditions of each. Speaking of history, um, we talked a little bit about the history of education in your life and how that affected your past and how it affected um, your appreciation for education. Speak a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, so my mom had me when she was 15, which was super young, as, as many people can obviously see. And when she had me, my grandmother was in about her mid-30s, and she at the time was getting her master's degree and ultimately deciding to be a teacher. So as she was kind of getting her teaching certification and her master's degree, what she would do is she would go to school in the day and teach during the day and then come home at night and kind of reiterate everything that she was learning in school with me. So in a sense, she was my first teacher. So she was ultimately a teacher for about 35 years, uh, retired in 2017 and ultimately passed away from cancer less than a year later. But I think her path as an educator and as someone who valued not only the value of an education, but also what one could do in an education space. When she came to America from St. Lucia, she ended up enrolling in Medgar Evers College and helped form the Women's Resource Center there that still exists to this day. Mm -hmm. So she was always about connecting not only the history of black and brown folks, 
but also the history and education and how those two things tied in. So when I started navigating my own educational path in predominantly white institutions, I was able to kind of look at her experience and her background and, and how she was able to navigate it and viewed my education as not only a, a right, but viewed my education as a black person in these predominantly white institutions as a direct protest to what the institutions actually stood for and were created for. So every time I walk into those institutions, I don't view my role there as just, you know, a person who deserves to be there. I view it as a direct, a direct pushback to the way that black and brown people are viewed in America. We're not supposed to be educated. The very foundation of slavery was founded so that black and brown people weren't educated. But every time we enter those spaces, we stand as protest to what exactly the America that was founded for stands for. That's such a powerful contrast because a lot of times, especially um, in communities that aren't used to education and, and sectors of the community that aren't used to education, uh, when a kid is taken out of that environment and put into these uh, independent or private schools, it's seen as a privilege. It's seen as um, like a Moses growing up in Egypt type of situation, right? It, it, it's seen as this type of shining thing, but you're saying that it's a protest. It's, it's, a, it's an act of rebellion almost. That's so interesting. I, I feel like a lot of people don't take the resources um, back to the community, right? And you, you that's, this is what you've done. You've taken the resources back to the community. Speak to the necessity of not just being uh, occupying space in these communities, but being vocal in these communities. Right. I have a tendency, especially in the predominantly white spaces that I've navigated, to have the ear of people because of the way that I am able to be a bridge builder when times are necessary, because I think in a lot of this work and a lot of this um, time, you have to be able to bridge and build bridges across various demographics, because I think that's really important. But I think what I, what I tend to do in a space is I always tell people that, that I kind of like to drop these bombs in the middle of the room, let it explode, and then walk out to see what happens. And there's so many ways that I do that. Um, one way that I like to do it is I'm, I'm naturally pretty humorous and I have a pretty witty sense of humor. So let's say, for instance, I walk into a room and it is three or four faculty members or staff members of color and everybody else in the room is white. Mm -hmm. And the concentrated number of people of color in that room at that time, I'll sometimes just say, oh, man, they just brought all the people of color together. Watch out. <laughs> Let it sit. And sometimes what I like to do is see what happens in that silence. Because traditionally in these spaces, what tends to happen is that, and I always viewed this, that to be comfortable, specifically in America, is a white, heteronormative, straight viewpoint. Those who fall under, and male viewpoint. So those who fall under that paradigm of being white, male, um, and heterosexual have all the rights to be free and comfortable mm -hmm. in America. So oftentimes when you don't, fall into one of those categories, you realize that your comfort is by, by, by not falling into those categories, your comfort is a privilege. And I refuse in these spaces to let my comfort be a privilege. So what I do is I create moments of discomfort because in those moments of discomfort is when you traditionally find spaces where people can really have some meaningful conversations and really push past that discomfort. Because what I always tell white people is that I have never felt comfortable in any space that I navigate. Because mm -hmm. my very being is an uncomfortable space. I'm a black man in America. I am traditionally and by historic standards, should be uncomfortable. 
So if I can be uncomfortable and navigate and be successful and kind of figure out ways in which to make these connections, white people should feel because they have the right and the privilege to do the same. So I really try to use some of my own body, some of my own characters and my own personality to kind of shift and shake and create these conversations. And ultimately what I found out is that because I've been able to kind of have this background in education and diversity and equity and really speaking to these things, people tend to value what I bring to the table more. So what I tend to tend to do is make that table bigger and try to bring more people to the table who have some of those similar viewpoints or even who have who don't have some of those similar viewpoints so that we can create those moments of tension and discomfort and hopefully push past them to ultimately get to a point of meaningful change. So you said a lot and that's that's a lot, right? Because <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, you know my thing is making the the table bigger is always a great thing, right? But in times like this when people have been harboring a lot of hurt and pain and it might not be, uh, they might not be able to translate that into humor or might not be able to translate that into something that is palatable, so to speak. Um, Is there a way that you can still get your pain out, but be honest to yourself and, 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 you know, maybe a a little bit pugnacious? Yeah, you know, I think in those moments of pain and in those moments of struggle, historically, especially within the Black community, is where you find some of the most transformative moments. You think of the civil rights movement, you think of various intersectional movements that have occurred, um, Black Lives Matter being created by women, um, Black women particularly. I think those moment, in those moments of pain is oftentimes when you push through and you see some of the things that you want to accomplish or you push through to get those things. So I think pain is important and it's important to recognize pain and to to sit in it and to to process it and kind of be in it. But I also think you can't sit in it forever because if you sit in it forever, then you don't realize that there's beauty after the pain. And I always tell people that traditionally what, what I've realized is that too oftentimes people see your glory but don't know your story. All of our stories have some level of pain in it, but all of our stories also have those moments of triumph and pain because that's exactly what life is. Life is being able to deal with the challenging moments, to appreciate the beautiful moments, to then be able to face again the challenging moment. It kind of goes in a circle. So there will always be times of pain, but if you stick in and live with that pain forever, then you sometimes get bogged down in it. And I refuse to, one, be bogged down in it, but I also refuse to not acknowledge that being Black in America is both a painful experience, but also a beautiful one. I think Talib Kweli says it best, uh, life is a beautiful struggle. And I think that that struggle and that beauty kind of go hand in hand. Listen, if y'all thought that y'all got that the first time, you didn't. Pause it, rewind it, re-listen to it, pause it again, rewind it, and re-listen to it, because that is, wow. The, the, okay, so where do I go first? Because that's, that's a lot, right? Because we always say here that our pain is someone else's potion, right? You can use your pain in order for someone else to heal so they don't have to like like Jay-Z says, Hove did that. So hopefully you won't have to go through that, you know? Right. Um right. And, and one of the most disheartening things that I'm seeing now, and not disheartening, but sad, right? Is um the stories on this black at LRI um experiences platform, there are stories that of kids that are going there now. There are stories mm-hmm. of kids that recently graduated and um I'm 10 years removed, you're a little bit uh more and to think that these these things are still going on and still um, persisting, right? What are, in your opinion, it doesn't have to be like, you know, concrete, but what are some maybe three or four key points on ways to push things forward 
after after talking? You know, I think you have to hold the people in power accountable. Mm-hmm. I think oftentimes what happens in protest, you protest, you protest, you protest, and by the very nature of protest, things die down. And oftentimes when things die down, those levels of power that have been strong before tend to become even stronger. They tend to be to push back. So what I'm really enjoying now is seeing the pushback that's occurring. And for the first time, probably in modern American history, you can't ignore it because there's nothing else to pay attention to. You have no sports, you have no restaurants, you have no bars, you have nothing to do but literally watch people protest because you watched a black man get lynched for eight and a half minutes. So when you have nothing else to watch and you have nothing else to do and there's nothing else in front of you, you cannot ignore what, what's directly in front of you. So I think holding the people accountable to do what they said that they would do mm-hmm. is, is, is important. To build coalitions across race and across gender and across nationality. Because I think what we're noticing now in the streets is that we're, we're, we're seeing much more white people than probably I've ever seen in a protest movement, probably in American history. I have been protesting um, unjust injustices in the police department since I was 12. I went to my first protest as a seventh grader at mm. LREI when I believe Amadou Diallo got mm. um, murdered in New York. It was either that or when Abner Nawima got raped. It was one of the two, but that just shows how much that occurs. So mm. you, you build those multicultural coalitions that allow for times when you aren't in the room for your viewpoint to still be in the room. I think there are times when I've looked to white colleagues and I've looked to other colleagues who may be in spaces that I'm not in because of their roles and positions. And I've asked them to be the voice that I would be if I was in that space. So being able to build those allies across generations, across race, across ethnicities to really hold the people accountable, but then also hold yourself and your people accountable. I think one of the things that I'm really glad to see over the past five to 10 years is the, these deep levels of conversation happening within spaces that traditionally they wouldn't happen before. You know, we talk about toxic masculinity. We talk about um, being able to, you know, call people out on, on certain things, be able to have these meaningful conversations, because I think what we're seeing is growth. And I think we have to allow for that growth to happen, but we have to also push for ourselves to grow as well. Mm-hmm. I've always told, told people the way I was at 10 wasn't the way I was at 20 wasn't the way I was at 30 and isn't the way I am now at 36 and being able to accept that growth and accept that people can change, but also, you know, push people to be better and do more so that ultimately at the end of the day, you create that larger coalition to call those people out who need to be called out and ultimately um, who hold the power. So you, you, you talked a little bit about um, your path um, in education. Um, can you talk about your career? in education as well a little bit more about that because i want to tie in maybe some of the differences um between the if you're not in new york listening um there's a difference in the economy and not economy so much but the the thought process that goes into the schools uh downtown like the lreis and then the more uptown elite um exclusive schools so give a little pathways of your career and maybe some of the differences in each of those institutions. Yeah, so um, I started working um, at Boston College as a student in the admissions office. So I had a really close up to like real, real in-depth view of 
the process of an admissions office at a top tier university, which was both professionally and personally fascinating. Some of those people who worked there are still friends that I call on to this day, and I've now graduated from that school 14 years ago. Um, after that, I returned to New York, worked at Prep for Prep for a while, um, then shifted my focus after working at Prep to working at Harlem Children's Zone, which is one of the larger charter networks in New York City. Worked there for about two years, but the role the role there was very interesting in that I was a college coordinator. So I was able to utilize the skills that I developed in the admissions office of Boston College to help a completely different demographic of students get into college, which was completely fascinating. Did that for a couple of years and shifted my focus at that point because I always felt that I had something to bring back to the independent school space. Um, so I started working at Dalton, which is a pretty well-known independent school in, on the Upper East Side. Shifted there after about a year or two and worked at Fieldston. Um, the Manhattan campus of, of the Fieldston School, which really was a fascinating experience for me to go from, um, you know, going to school at a really, really liberal progressive space to going to a really traditional Irish Catholic college to <laughs> working in um, literally 135th and Adam Clayton Powell in the middle of the hood in Harlem to now being in these very, very rarefied spaces. One of the things that always kind of connected me to those spaces were not only the experience that I had that allowed me to be in those spaces, but also that in each space, I tried to remain as authentic as possible. And that was a challenge, as one can imagine, in a predominantly white, um, wealthy institution. But I always made sure that the places that I worked at were able to reflect my beliefs as well. So even though, the, you know, Dalton and Fieldston, their tuitions are like 50-something thousand dollars, and, you know, you're getting kids from these really, really high-class um, socioeconomic backgrounds, the missions of the school really tended to mirror kind of what I believed in. And I knew that when moments of that would arise that didn't necessarily mirror what I believed in, I would be able to tell the school to look at its mission and look at what it stands upon to ultimately address those issues. So I, I made sure that I didn't work in a traditional independent school because I knew that my personality, what I brought to the table wouldn't necessarily meet well with those spaces. So mm -hmm. I tend to try to find spaces that I know I can make effective change, but that I could also be authentically who I am and not feel like if I do this or say this, I might come off the wrong way that people yeah. may not like it. Because I think at the end of the day, that authenticity is something that I think is really valuable in these spaces. It's see, that's interesting because I would think that you would have to be a chameleon in spaces that you you know, I mean, you know, I know, and, and some people know, you know, it's just not the typical, uh, not the typical type of wealth either, right? Like we have this TV vision of wealth, but then you have that like real, when you see it in person, that real type of wealth, and you're like, oh, we're dealing with something, something different here, right? Mm -hmm. I'll, tell you, I'll tell you a story. Um, before I got to, I, I was in prep, I believe, and um, one of my cousins worked at Trinity, and, or my cousin's person's whatever, worked at Trinity. And they said, these kids are crazy. Someone dropped a $20 bill. And I told them, they said, you can have it. And I went in, I was like, oh, well, I'm about to go pick up a whole bunch of $20 bills. <laughs> that was my, <laughs> and, and that's the type of wealth that, um, that we're talking about just for people who may not have that context. Do you think that going into these spaces, they're, seems to be a, a liberal agenda. Um, I talked about to you about this yesterday. Uh, and with the whole conversation that's going on now, I see a lot of pushback from people from more traditional schools saying that this is um, an agenda, seeing that a lot of, um, saying that a lot of these programs are geared towards, 
I don't know. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't try to put words in their mouth or I'd rather have them come on and talk about it. But you talked a little bit about agendas. Yeah, you know, that term agenda is so loaded because the, the, I remember the very first time I heard the word like agenda attached to something. And I believe it was about the gay black agenda that people were feeling like they were, they were being imposed upon them while watching television shows. And I really sat back and I was like, wait, so the fact that people who identify as gay and black are represented in these spaces that traditionally they weren't represented in means that there's an agenda to get that out there, as opposed to maybe this is the time to have more representation of all various sorts of people in the media. So I think that that kind of goes hand in hand with that quote unquote liberal agenda. I don't think it's a liberal agenda to ask schools and predominantly white institutions to be equitable and fair and reflective of the people who navigate those spaces. I don't think it's a liberal agenda to ask um, police officers not to put their knee on the back or the necks of people and kill them. I don't think there's a liberal agenda that way. I think that's people asking for what is fair and just in a society that is theoretically supposed to be founded with the belief that all men are created equal. Even that all men are created equal has never been true because it says men and not women. So I think mm. the people who, who use the term liberal agenda, I always tell people it's not a liberal agenda to ask for equity and fairness in a country that has historically not shown it to anyone who wasn't white male. Mm. I want you to speak a little bit to this as well. As someone who um, is known for speaking truth to power, and I'm sure that you've come up against this. Um, how is it to deal with uh, liberal elitism or elitism in general uh, with people who, you know, might have uh, the financial power to or the uh, political power to take positions away or keep you from things? How do you navigate that space? Because I feel like a lot of people in this time don't want to say a lot of things to their uh, counterparts or their coworkers because that might be my job or that might be my financial security. I've always been comfortable in the fact that I could lose my job at any given moment. And I think helping me go into spaces knowing that that's always a possibility has allowed me to be more free in those spaces. I may lose my job because there might be a budget cut. You know, I'm, people are losing jobs left and right every day right now because a pandemic occurred in March that nobody had in their budget when they were creating budgets last year. So if you can lose your job over a pandemic in the middle of a time like this, then that means that job security really isn't the thing that we should be trying to hold on to now. And if, if you find yourself in these spaces where you have the chance to make some substantive change and create substantive conversations, and the thing you're worried about is your job, then maybe you shouldn't be in those spaces right now. Because I think what, what has been the status quo for too long is starting to shift by people in those spaces who are pushing the space to be better. You know, you look at, you know, Essence Magazine the other day came out with a big expose from some of their um, employees talking about discrimination within the company. And it's, it, that movement is built by the people who work there every single day, whose jobs are on the line every single day. So I never, I never walk into a space thinking I'm going to be here forever. I'm walking into a space thinking however long I'm here, I'm going to keep getting that check, but I'm also going to keep making sure that at the end of the day, when I walk out of the office, I can say that I can hold my head high and know that whatever I did that day helped somebody along the way and hopefully will create a doorway where somebody else who looks like me, talks like me, acts like me, might be able to come into the door after I leave. 
Mm. Effect over economy almost. Yeah. Yeah, because again, I mean, I'm a person, I know I will always have a job somewhere. Like, I'm employable. So if my life's work is to try to keep a job, then what is my life about? Yeah, yeah. Granted, one wants to create the, one wants to create opportunities financially for themselves to be better. But at the end of the day, when you lay your head down on that pillow or at the end of one's life when you're in that casket, what are they saying about the legacy that you left? And I think mm-hmm. in every space that I'm in, I always try to create some sort of legacy so that when I'm out the door, the people who are there behind me can say that we really miss him because he added something to this space that wasn't there. And how can we find somebody else who can kind of bring some of that energy to the space as well? So usually we save this question for the end, but after profundity like that, I just got to slip this in there. Uh, we always say that a purpose is never personal. And to acquiesce um, the 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 your job security or or your job and your your life security really your financial security for your purpose is a powerful sentiment. It's not a sentiment that a lot of people have. It's an honorable sentiment. Uh, it's a it's one of the reasons why I respect you so much if we're sitting face to face because you know zoom is a little bit weird and i want people to imagine you in all candor answering this question uh if i asked you what is keem's purpose outside of himself what would that answer be hmm that that's a really good question i think my purpose is to create effective change and create institutions or help create institutions that are more representative of the spaces that I come from. I'm the oldest of seven, grew up in Flatbush, Brooklyn. I come from a family of strong Caribbean roots. My, um, one of my relatives created the flag of St. Lucia and was knighted by the Queen of England. I have a, we call him Uncle Derek. Most people refer to him as Derek Walcott, who is a poet laureate. He's one of my family members as well. So I come from a strong history of people who have been able to be very successful in what they do. And I think that that history, while to some people might sound, oh my God, that's amazing. To me, everybody should have the opportunity to do that, whether they're in the Caribbean or whether they're here. So creating those spaces where people can feel like they can be authentically who they are, who they can feel like they're leaving a legacy behind after their time is done, and who can also feel like they can navigate a space as authentically as possible while still holding those people who navigate spaces of leadership to be accountable at the same time. I want to ask you a couple more questions because it's, for me, it's always, uh, I always reflect back to my time at um, Little Red and Elizabeth Irwin. And um, I was never the athlete. Five, six, I can't, I ain't throwing nobody's ball. (laughs) Um, And I was not really, I don't know, I I was pretty smart, but I I wasn't really that in that lane, right? But I could could be there if I needed to be. Um, Still, I was pegged as somewhere in terms of, uh, in the language of hip hop, Right. And as always, that's the analogies that were used when I would be in somebody's office or you're meeting with a teacher or, you know, 
my parents always talk about how they felt there was this type of seeing me through a black lens and not a general child that needs to learn lens, right? Speak a little bit to maybe your experience with that and um, how you, in your space, um, see people, what, what lens you, tr- you try to see people with. Yeah, I think that's, that's interesting because looking back on my time as a student in these spaces, I think there's always a bit of a lens that people see the black male body in, even when they try not to. I think that, you know, we live in a society where racism, sexism, xenophobia, all those things, is kind of like osmosis. You breathe in the air and you breathe in those stuff. It's almost mitochondrial, if you will. Like it's a part of your DNA because of the very nature of existing as a person in this country. So it takes a lot of work to push past all of that. And even the most well-intended, best people who practice it still make mistakes. And I think I would like to view people as ultimately having the best interest in mind, mm-hmm. even though I have to also give people space to you know, make mistakes and ho- hopefully rectify those mistakes and become better as, as time goes on. So I've always viewed that in that space. So to some extent, yeah, I'm sure I was looked at by some people as the, the Black kid from Brooklyn who grew up in Flatbush who nobody wanted to visit while he was in <laughs> school. But I've always used that as a tool in the spaces I am professionally. So mm-hmm. the last job I had, I had a chance to work with primarily kindergarten through fifth grade students. I always tell people, if you have a chance to work with young kids, it is the best experience you'll ever have because that is the most honest population of people you will ever come across. Mm -hmm. And in those spaces, I always had a keen eye to the kids who looked like me. I always tried to edify their existence in spaces. If a kid came to school with a new haircut, I made sure I dap them up. I'm like, look, cut. If I seen a kid come to school in Tim's, I'm like, okay, I know what's good. You know, it's kind of snowy (laughs) this morning. You need some Tim's on your foot. And then if I seen a, a, a girl who might have gotten her hair done, like, your hair looks really good today. Because you really don't realize how those little things, those little shifts of conversation can be the thing that keeps a kid going when the other thing comes to their, on their plate, which it invariably will in these spaces. Yeah. So I'm always look, it, to me, the way I look at it professionally is that there's a little bit of the 12-year-old me mm. that still exists that allows me to be as empathetic to people and as aware and alert as I can be because I know that that's the way that I would have wanted someone to be with me at that age. So that's the, the way I kind of navigate these spaces, even as a professional, because I think looking back, at, looking back at one's story and one's childhood, you realize the people you wanted to be in your life and you mm-hmm. try to be a little bit more like that, while also realizing that there were people in your life who did mirror some of those things. And you take it kind of all that skill set together to ultimately create the kind of person you want to be in a professional space. I love that because it speaks to one, validating people that might not always feel validated, and two, bringing something, you, you talked about this a lot, uh, bringing something back. So bringing uh, what you learned back into the independent school space, bringing what you learned in the independent school space back to other places of education, back to the community, back to kids that look like you, right? Have you, do you think things are getting more progressive in terms of us bringing things back to the community because I feel like for a long time we've had this stigma of getting out and staying gone, right? Speak a little bit to the the air, what you see, right, um, around New York and in the independent school realm. 
Um, are we coming back? Are we doing enough for our community? You know, I think we always have been doing a lot in our community. I think what makes it different now is that we have social media that brings mm. the things that we're doing back to life. You know, I, you know, I graduate. So I always tell people that my educational life spanned the life of social media. So when I started at Little Red in 1996, I can remember creating my first Gmail account. Mm. By the time I got to college, I got to college when Facebook was rolled out. In fact, I was at Boston College and Facebook was created across the river. So I was one of the first schools to get a Facebook account. I had a chance to see Instagram and all these things created that highlighted stories that traditionally would not be highlighted because the gatekeepers were who the gatekeepers were. And the gatekeepers at that time, and still are primarily, but the gatekeepers at that time were white men. Mm -hmm. Because of social media democratizing what we see and how we hear, it's both a blessing and a curse. You're getting, the, you're getting the ability to see so much amazing things that you wouldn't see before while you're also getting the other side too that doesn't want to believe in climate change and doesn't want to believe in science and things that you can open up every single bar in a state <laughs> down south and not expect COVID to proliferate in those spaces. So I think social media and people's utilization of it has helped make people aware of actually what is occurring in communities in ways that 10... 15, 20 years ago, just couldn't happen because the spaces weren't, weren't in existence. So I think what we're seeing now is highlighting a lot of those stories. But mm. like I said, there's a reason that the vast majority of people from many of these programs go back into education. And the goal is to go back into those spaces or go back into communities that we saw the need to be in and ultimately make those changes. So I think it's always been there. But I believe mm. that social media has put a sounding board on it in a way, especially in the past five to 10 years, that it wouldn't have had it not existed. That's so important. I think that a lot of times people, and I know I do this as well, we teeter between want, not wanting to seem like a clout chaser and not wanting to seem like the person that puts their whole entire life on uh, social media, but then you don't want to be caught in that number of you don't do nothing for your, for your people. You don't do nothing for, you know. So how, how do you walk that line? Do you, are you one person that's like, ah, let me, social media, social media, my life is my life, or? I mean, you know, it's, it's hard to disassociate the two. I think that there are ways that people disassociate the two, but I think if you're on social media, that is part of who you are. It's part of your brand, if you will, though I hate the word brand, but I think <laughs> it's part of who you are. Um, but I also think, and this comes with age, I think I turned 30 uh, in 2014, and one of the first things that people who were older than me at the time told me was that, there's a level of liberation that occurs when you're 30 that just doesn't occur when you're younger. And I think it comes down to simply not caring what people think of you, say about you, and really doing what you're doing because it makes you feel good and it makes your goals in life make sense to you. So there's a liberation in being able to be like, I just don't really care what people think. I'm going to continue doing what I've been doing because I think it's working and I'm going to continue to be better in what I'm doing because I think I can do more that has kind of helped me, especially after I turned 30 that beforehand, I just couldn't. Because in your 20s, you're like, you want to be friends with everybody. You really care about what people think. Once you're 30, like, you know what? I think I'm I. I think I can navigate <laughs> this space. You're always trying to grow as you get older, but I think by, yeah. by 30, you're not really caring as much about what other people's opinions of what you're doing are because at the end of the day, everybody will have an opinion, whether it's good or bad, but you yeah. can't 
do the work you're doing and you can't live your life for other people's opinions. You can only live it to make it feel better for you and to ultimately make that change that you think is important. Let's bring it a little bit to, uh, my, to current uh, history. Mm-hmm. Right? You are working now at the Girl Scouts of America. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, Girl Scouts are great in New York. So, we, so okay. here's the thing. The Girl Scouts of America, is both, they're located in New York as well, but mm-hmm. I particularly work for the Girl Scouts of Greater New York, which is um, the only council in America that is a purely urban council, meaning that we're the only council in the country that is directly located in a city. So everybody who's part of the Girl Scouts of Greater New York, they're located only in the five boroughs. We don't really have much of affiliation with um, the Long Island chapter or the chapter north or south of us. Okay. See, my whole thing about Girl Scouts is if it's not with those cookies, then I don't know nothing about it. But Listen, I was the same way before I got the job, bro. Like, I tell people all the time, I was all about the cookies. And then when I saw like all the things the program did, I was like, number one, y'all need to market this better because nobody knows about this stuff. And then number two, it's kind of dope. So, yeah, I totally understand what you mean. Where, um, so <laughs> I got to ask this, right? And we talked about this yesterday a little bit, but I want you to give a little bit of how do how does a young black man get into the space of the Girl Scouts of Greater New York, which is predominantly young white women or or young white girls, I would say. Right. And see, again, and it goes to a multitude of things. I think that there's a level of and this is partially what I had to navigate to. Mm-hmm. So when I applied for the position, I currently work as an independent school partnership specialist. So I'm pretty much a liaison for not only the Girl Scouts as an organization, but also independent schools. So as one can imagine, when I walk into spaces and I say that I am working for the Girl Scouts representing independent schools, most people look at me like, but you're a black guy. Those sound really <laughs> antithetical. And to some extent, it is antithetical. But I also think that that goes to the work that I've done professionally. I've been able to step into these spaces that traditionally most people wouldn't even think of someone like me stepping into and really kind of making it and creating it and kind of creating my own space in that. And I don't think it's any different here. But I also think looking at what the Girl Scouts of Greater New York represents and the Girl Scout organization in general, it really represents the largest girl-led movement to create leaders in the country. I think our girls are doing some amazing things that I'm always marveled at every day. And I think being able to articulate that to, to people in spaces that wouldn't even think about the Girl Scouts has been great for me, but it has also allowed me to really look at the work that I've done in those spaces and try to modify to make it better. Um, you know, currently we're going a bit of a restructuring and I'm excited to see what my role and what the organization can do after shifting from, you know, mostly in-person things to virtual. And I think the level of what we can do in that space and really edifying and highlighting and elevating our girls is fantastic. But I think, you know, in every space that I've been in, I've been able to kind of be the, you mentioned chameleon. I think it's not even a chameleon as much as he just has a skill. Like I just have a skill set that mm-hmm. very few people have. And I've been, in those spaces where I can take that skill set and bring other people to the table. And I think that is so important in whatever space I'm in. So yeah, I work for the Girl Scouts. It's weird, it's strange, it's <laughs> cool. We sell yeah. all kinds of cookies and it and but we also we also have a camp upstate where we can we, we send girls to camp every summer. We have a leadership institute where girls are coming from all over the city 
from all kinds of backgrounds and like learning about leadership in New York. So it's, it's a really cool space to be in. And I'm glad that I've always been able to align my beliefs personally to my profession. And I think that is really where I'm able to kind of step into that space and be able to kind of create that tension, create that mm-hmm. discomfort, but also kind of push people past it to have some of these larger conversations. And I want to point out quickly for people who are listening, right? And especially people who are younger, who are looking for careers, uh, the way that uh, Kim was able to leverage not only education, but networking, leverage not only networking, but his, um, his, his beliefs into things that, into careers that might not have been, um, what word should I use? I don't want to say average, but aren't typical right? Using what he has to leverage into a space that is niche for him is so important. A lot of times we try to go with the crowd and we try to go with what's popular. We try to go with what should be, what should fit right in and uh, what what our parents tell us or what the advisor tells us or what the counselor tells us. And instead of carving out that space for us, he talked about not being afraid of losing his job uh, and being able to stand up for what he believes because he doesn't have that fear. And that is because he's leveraged space for himself. He's leveraged that, uh, that those opportunities for himself. I love that. Um, How do you translate working with Girl Scouts of New York to um, what we should be doing in the community for, or at, in Girl Scouts or in other school institutions, what should we be doing for young black girls in terms of confidence, growth, things of that nature? You know, I think the, the things we should do for young black girls are the things we should do for young black children in general, mm-hmm. or young children in general. And mm-hmm. I think kids want to feel respected. They want to feel that their opinion is heard. They want to feel that people who are supportive of them and i think that's especially and acutely necessary within communities of color so i i always try to enter the spaces that i'm in thinking of not only how am i working with the girls or the kids that look like me but also how i'm working with everyone because i think that there's a space where you can really make some effective change and effective meaningful connections when you realize that kids all want the same thing yeah do you think um we, we talked about this last yesterday um in terms of black men right there's a part of the conversation going on where we have not been the best when it comes to protecting um black women what do you think uh we can be doing better in the community and as and as people personal people yeah you know just continuing working on ourselves i think we have to you know call people out but also call people being able to have some of those really deep, meaningful conversations with our friends, our family members, mm-hmm. um, and just really being able to dig deep and try to be better each day than we were the day before. Yes, yes. One yes. second, I'm going to close the door because my nieces and nephews are home. <laughs> and you know what that means. Give me one sec. Got you. <laughs> Guys, it, it, it is while he goes and handles his business, as we all do, I'm going to just speak a little bit. It is so important to find mentors in your life. It is so important to find people that no matter what, 
they're going to feed positivity into your life. They're going to feed life into you. And sometimes it's not, um, it's, we have to get out of it being the typical people, right? We, we, we love Jay-Z, right? We love uh, Kanye. We love, rest in peace, Kobe. We love LeBron. We love the people like, but sometimes it's people that are so close to us that we don't even recognize how great they are right that that are feeding into our lives things that we can do uh to make ourselves better i'll tell you one thing um whenever i see this brother it is a word of life it is a word of um reaffirming that certain things are possible that i might not think are possible at the time even if i don't do it because i'm a knucklehead even if i don't do it it's important to have people in your life that are uh, conduits of, of, of life and of learning. Um, as, as the brother comes back, I'm going to re-ask the question and maybe expand on a little bit. So we're talking about um, protecting Black women, because that is a big part of the conversation right now. We have the J. Cole and the uh, young lady uh, from, from uh, uh, no name. name. Is that her name? Yeah. Mm-hmm. No name, yeah. Not to throw dirt on her. I, I just don't listen no, no. to that <laughs> music anymore. But yeah, to sp- speak a little bit about that. You know, let me think back. So I'm thinking specifically about how do you protect Black women, but also Mm -hmm. how do you do better as Black men? And I think a lot of it has to go to, you know, addressing your own instances in life when you weren't the best person. And I Mm -hmm. think, you know, as I mentioned, you know, when you live in a society that is intrinsically has all these isms and has all these things that make it what America is, unfortunately, those things filter down to you. And I think it's impossible to, to exist and not have so some of the toxic to- toxicity, if you will, kind of filter down as well. But I also think that one can learn from those moments of toxicity to be better, yeah. um, to do better, um, to be more of what you want to be. And I think a lot of that comes with age. I think a lot of that comes with wisdom. And I think a lot of that just comes with the changing nature of, society. I think certain things that were acceptable 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago just isn't acceptable anymore. And that's a good thing. Um, but I always allow for people to change, to be, for people to grow. Because I know I've had to do some of that myself. I know that the way I was 15, 20 years ago isn't the way that I am now. And being able to realize that the importance of, of that change and that growth has allowed me to help others change, grow, and make some of the impacts that they need. Because I understand that by the very nature of being human, yeah. you are flawed and that we all have those flaws and we all continue every single day to work on addressing and rectifying some of those flaws. Yeah. So I think that's where I kind of come into the space is that I'm always high giving people grace. Then mm-hmm. we allow some grace for ourselves yeah. and ultimately we allow for some of those, the things that we might have done or we might have participated then as younger people we, we allow for some growth in that moment as well i love that so um at the end of all these interviews we have something called the good words these words that you said throughout the interview that resonated with me and that i think uh will resonate with other people if, if they listen to it back with these words they'll get an even deeper, deeper meaning um so uh those words are inequity foundation um, education, value, beauty after pain, 
Glory versus Story Accountability, Coalition Network, Mitochondrial, Shift, Antithetical, Authentic, Authentic, Authentic. Kim, thank you so much for being here with us. Uh, there's a lot of information. This is definitely one of the interviews that I'm going to have to listen to over and over again because such gems and such knowledge. Uh, tell them, if you want to, where they can find you um, and, and, and where they can hit you up if they want some more knowledge from you. For sure. Um, I'm active on Twitter at Diverse Mind. Um, active on Instagram at Diverse Mind. My brunch blog is, or my brunch page is at Brunch God, B R U N C H G A W D. Um, also, find me on Facebook at Kim St. Omer, and I'm always willing and gladly able to kind of have more conversations because I think at the end of the day, by having conversations, then we get to the really, really meat and potatoes of who people are to ultimately make the world a better place. Yeah. Where do we go to get some free Girl Scout cookies? Um, we should stop <laughs> selling, but holla at me early next year when we roll out again, and I got you. Got you. But they not going to uh, be for free, though, because you know. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, y'all stay put. We, we got some uh, business to settle up with you. Akeem, you stay put. I'm going to talk to you a little bit after. And, uh, yeah, say goodbye to the people. Later, man. Appreciate y'all. All right. What did I tell y'all? What did I tell you? Didn't I tell you y'all was going to get some good knowledge? Didn't I tell you y'all was going to get some good learning? Listen, I love, love, love people who expand your mind and push you. Now, see if y'all notice, I was, I got a little bit fumbled up there because, you know, I, I, I try to stay around people who push me to be on my toes and be better and be faster, be swifter, be sharper. Right. If I am the quickest person in the room, I'm in the wrong room. If I am the, the the most educated person in the room, I'm in the wrong room. If I am the most eloquent person in the room, I'm in the wrong room. We always have to be around people that are sharpening us. We have to be around people that we're sharpening as well, but it has to be a balance. You can't just always be in rooms where you are the top dog you gotta make space for people who can teach you you gotta make space for people who can learn you you gotta make space for people who can guide you and mentor you the power of having mentorship is a gift that just keeps on giving guys i will see y'all next time as always think good see good do good but most importantly be good i love y'all peace Good people, don't forget to follow Finding Good Times at Finding Good Times on all platforms, at Finding Good Times on all available platforms, and of course, FindingGoodTimes.com. Keep following, keep sharing, keep reposting, most importantly, keep being good. Love y'all.